So we've been in this series for a little while. Matthew is a book that is trying to tell us about the greatest king ever. Jesus is the greatest king ever. From the very first chapter of Matthew, where Matthew compares Jesus to King David, and he basically says that Jesus is three times better than King David. Then as you keep reading, we find out that Jesus is better than the entire nation of Israel. As you keep reading, we find out that Jesus is better than Moses. His law is better than Moses and more encouraging than Moses. And you might think that Jesus is this king who is so powerful, so strong, so impressive that you want him to be on your side. Like if you're picking teams for kickball, you always want the largest kid on your side because A, if he's on your side, he's probably the one who's going to be able to kick the ball the farthest and you want that, and B, if he's not on the other side, then he's not going to get mad at you and beat you up because he's on your side. See, you want the bully to be on your side of the playing field. We always want the bully to be on our side. We would much rather have the bully be on our side. And when it comes to the person in charge, we'd love to have a bully in charge because if he's on our side, then, hey, we feel safe and secure. The problem with Jesus that we've seen time and time again in the book of Matthew is that Jesus is the king of suffering. He's the king of sacrifice. He's the king of selflessness. And when he calls his followers to become citizens of his new kingdom, he describes for them a life that is about trusting God, not yourself. A life that is about judging yourself, not others. A life that is about being a blessing to the world around you. Everything about Jesus doesn't fit our paradigm of the kind of king we want, even though he is definitely the kind of king that we need. The biggest challenge that we've learned over the last couple of weeks is that the people who get into Jesus' kingdom are specifically the people who know they don't deserve it. The poor in spirit, Jesus said. The ones who are willing to walk on the narrow path and follow him. It's a challenging thing that we've been looking at, but today we're going to move on into a much larger section. We've been taking it little bit by little bit, but this next section, chapters 8 through 9, I have to show you the whole thing together, because if I don't, you will get the wrong impression, and I will get the wrong impression. In fact, I've read these passages so many times in my life that I, they always come out of context. The preacher is always going to talk about Jesus calming the storm and take a whole sermon to talk about Jesus calming the storm. The preacher is going to talk about the man being brought to Jesus and he says, your sins are forgiven. Or the, the woman who touches the hem of his cloak. The preacher is going to spend the whole time talking about just those stories. But guess what? They're part of a bigger story, a bigger narrative, and I want you to see the big picture. In fact, to help you see the bigger picture, we're going to start by looking at the last few verses of chapter 9. So I want to take you to the final verses of chapter 9, and then we'll go back to 8 and we'll read through it and see all what Jesus is talking about here. But it says this, Jesus went through all of the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Okay, so here's the first thing that you need to know. It's the thing that you already knew. Jesus is a teacher and he's a healer, right? These are the things you already knew. You read, and and Jesus is teaching people, and he's healing people. And we love this. We love to know that Jesus is teaching and healing because we like both of those things. I mean, selfishly, we like both of those things. You might not think you liked school, but every one of you had at least one teacher in school, and you liked that teacher Because that teacher did something different than all the other teachers were doing. And even if that teacher gave you a long lecture, you appreciated it. Or that teacher gave you some some kind of long homework assignment, you appreciated it because something about that teacher was so great. All of us have a selfish desire to experience really good teaching. That explains the phenomenon of the TED Talk. How it is that someone could get up on a stage and talk for 20 minutes about some inane scientific topic and millions of people on YouTube would be like, I want to see this. It's because good teaching is entertaining. 
And we love that, even if we don't care about the subject. And so when we see that Jesus is a teacher, we love that. We don't even care what he's talking about, just so long as it's good teaching. We like that. Selfishly, teaching is entertaining. But then, of course, the healing. I mean, come on. If you see a person who's paralyzed, who then gets up and walks, or you see a person that you know is blind, and all of a sudden they can see how many fingers you're holding up, that's an amazing thing. That would be entertaining. Don't get me wrong. That would be fun to see. And so when we think of Jesus as a teacher and a healer, we are selfishly drawn to that. But also, you can be, you know, nice and drawn to that too. It doesn't have to be all selfish because maybe you want your friend to be healed. Maybe there's someone that you know and love and they need some healing. Or maybe there's someone you know and they just need to be straightened up. Someone you know, and they need a little bit of teaching slapping them up the face because that person is doing things wrong and you want them to get it right. See, we want Jesus to be the guy who sets people straight and who fixes people's problems. And the next few verses confirm that. Keep going. It says this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Again, there are two things going on here. He sees people and he notices, one, they're harassed and helpless. In other words, they have a problem, they're harassed, and they're helpless, they can't solve their problem. So someone has to fix their problem. They're also like sheep, no, stay on that one for just a bit. They, they're also like sheep without a shepherd. And that means that they are sheep, which are dumb, And they need direction. They need to be set straight. They need to be led. And so in both of these things, you see the healing and the teaching showing up again. Teaching because they're sheep who need some direction. They need a shepherd. And healing because they've got a problem and they need someone else to solve their problem. So again, it looks like Jesus is confirming this thing that he came to be a teacher and a healer. This is our problem. Because we look at Jesus and the things that he does as if those things are ends in themselves. Jesus came to teach people and he came to heal people. And we're like, man, I just love seeing Jesus heal people. That's what Jesus is for. Man, I just love hearing Jesus teaching because that's what Jesus is for. And we as people have a tendency, no matter how long you've been in church, we have a tendency to view Jesus as a person who exists to teach us or to solve our problems. But what Jesus does in the last verse of chapter 9 is he changes the metaphor. Take a look at this. It says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus uses the word harvest three times. Before, the metaphor was harassed people who are helpless or sheep who need a shepherd. Harassed people need someone to help them and to fix their problems. Sheep need someone to guide them and to help them stay on the right path. Harassed people need something. Sheep need something. But Jesus changes the metaphor. And here's my question to you. What does a harvest need? Here's the fascinating thing about harvests. You probably are aware of this. Maybe you know some farmers. But when the harvest comes... The plants don't need anything anymore. That's the end of their process. Early on in the plant's process, you need fertilizer and you need water and you need all this stuff. But at the end, you don't want it to rain on your harvest. At the end, you don't want to spray your harvest with more chemicals. At the end, those plants don't need anything else at all except one thing. The harvest needs to be brought in. If it is left out there, it rots, it dies, and the whole process was wasted. The only thing a harvest needs is to be brought in. Check this out. Jesus doesn't teach people because he wants them to learn more. Jesus doesn't heal people because he's the guy who fixes your problems. Jesus helps people, and he teaches people because he wants them to come to him. He wants to bring people in. Jesus' overarching metaphor is this harvest one. He says harvest three times, even though sheep one time and harassed one time. What he really wants is to bring people in. Now, the reason I spent so much time on that 
is because you have to understand this. I have to understand this. We tend to see Jesus for the ends of what he can do for me. He can give me teaching to help me get my life straight. He can give me teaching to help me put someone else straight. He can solve my problems or he can solve my friend's problems. He can teach, he can heal, but he is not a teacher and he's not a healer. He is a gatherer. He is the one who is trying to gather the harvest in. The people might be people who need some teaching, they might need some healing, but what they really need is to be brought in. Everything that we see Jesus do is about this idea, trying to bring people in. So now, let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 8. We're going to race through this long string of miracles and amazing things that Jesus does. And I want you to keep this in mind. Everything Jesus does is just to bring people in. Bring people into relationship with him. Bring people into the kingdom. Here we go. Chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, remember he was on the mountain teaching. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. We've just been through all that. Last week was our last week in that section. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Just pay attention to these words of people who are coming or people who are following Jesus. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. A couple quick comments. Jesus says don't tell anyone a couple times in this section. And that's because he already has a large crowd. And he doesn't want a bunch of people just coming to be in the crowd. He is far more interested in the followers than he is in the crowd. Keep that in mind. Also, he says, don't tell anyone, you know, this happened. Instead, go first to the priest because that's what the law of Moses said. A person with leprosy was supposed to go to the priest first and get their approval for re-entering society. And Jesus is following that law. He's following that code and that principle. It's a pretty amazing thing. But anyway, so he says that. Now, I could pause there on the guy with leprosy, but let's keep reading because you're going to see something interesting. Verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Remember, that's a Roman soldier who was in charge of a hundred troops. That's how he got the name centurion. A hundred troops. He, the centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you, that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. So quick comment about Jesus' statement about the people coming from a foreign distance. It's interesting that Jesus said there are people from way outside the family of Israel who are going to come into the family of Israel. And there are people who are in the family of Israel who are going to be kicked out. For Jesus' day, that was a scandalous statement to make. Because the people of Israel were already in, that meant they were safe, right? But Jesus' point is not to keep the people in. His point is to bring the people in. And the people, this is true for us today too, the people who are already in, when others come in, sometimes feel threatened. And the people who are already in, when new people come in, the people who are already in sometimes feel so threatened that they forget what the point of being in was all about. And Jesus says that the people of Israel lose their status 
of being in. Because Jesus is all about bringing people in. You see what's happening there? But that's not even the main point. That was the main point for them. We could make some main points about that today. But the main point I want to draw your attention to is the word faith. Did you notice it? Jesus said this centurion has great faith. Look at your Bibles. Look at the passage, and you tell me, I mean, not out loud because you're at home, but you could put it in the comments, and here in the room, if we were in another environment, I might actually ask some of you to raise your hand, and I walk around the room and whatever, but here, just at least get it in your head. When Jesus says this man had faith, what is it that the man had just affirmed? We have a weird relationship with faith. I'm going to get more deep into this in just a little bit. We have a very weird relationship with faith, but the faith that the centurion had and the faith that the man who had leprosy had are exactly the same faith. Yeah, go ahead. Skim back into the leprosy section. What is the faith of the man who had leprosy? He walked up to Jesus and he said, if you're willing, you can. One was a question. I don't know if you're willing. One was faith, but I know you can. The centurion comes to Jesus. And the centurion doesn't know if Jesus is going to heal his servant, but the centurion knows that Jesus can from anywhere. He says, Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. I mean, you're Jesus. You're obviously in charge of the universe. And if I'm in charge of 100 people and I can delegate my tasks to them, then Jesus, you can clearly delegate whatever it is you need to do to just happen and it'll happen. Jesus, I know you can do it from a distance. Here's the thing. Faith for both of these guys was just knowing Jesus can. Nothing more. Just knowing Jesus can. And that is what brought them to Jesus. Faith brought them to Jesus. That's a phrase you might hear in churches all the time. Faith come, is, is something that brings a person to Jesus. But this is also interesting. Faith isn't what you experience after you've come to Jesus. Faith is a thing that happens before you come to Jesus. These people had faith that Jesus could. That was their faith. And Jesus acknowledges that it's amazingly great faith. Well, I'd love to spend like, you know, my entire message on just that section, but let's keep going. Look at verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, remember Peter is one of the guys he asked to follow him. So Jesus is now in the house of one of his followers. Uh, Jesus came into Peter's house. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. This is amazing. Jesus, again, is saying, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do for these people what what they are coming to me to do, but the key is that they're coming to him, right? And then there's this really interesting thing that Matthew does where he says, quoting from Isaiah, he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now I've got to pause here for just a little bit, take another slight little detour. Because this verse has been misused in so many contexts and in so many ways to communicate exactly the opposite of what Jesus is doing. There are a lot of churches who take this verse that Jesus took up our infirmities, he bore our diseases, and they take that verse in the context of Matthew to claim that healing has already been provided for you. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, took all human suffering onto himself. He took it all, and so therefore healing has already been applied to your life. So you've got a bad back, The problem is that you have already been healed, you just haven't claimed it yet. You you have a, a brain tumor. The problem is that you've already been healed, you just haven't claimed it yet. I've been in many contexts where I've heard Christians use this phrase, I am believing God for my healing. 
You might have heard that too. And me just even bringing it up is kind of contradictory to some other Christian uh, positions, but the reason it's wrong in those other contexts is that they have misunderstood what Matthew is talking about, largely because they have misunderstood what Isaiah was talking about. So I want to skip you all the way back to Isaiah 53, one of the most amazing passages in the Old Testament if you want to know who Jesus is. Isaiah 53 is probably the second most important. Psalm 22 might be the first most important, at least from my perspective. But anyway, Isaiah 53, let me show it to you. It says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Who's the he? He The first, the subject of that sentence is the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming king. Isaiah is prophesying about the coming king. And he grew up before him. The second him is God. God is watching over the growth and development of the Messiah. But let's keep going. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. We've covered some of this ground before. Jesus is the king of suffering, pain, hardship. Keep going. It says, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So we didn't like this guy. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. We thought God was punishing him, but what was really happening is he was taking our punishment. God was punishing us in him first. Keep going. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The verse in Matthew is a quotation from the Septuagint version, which is an ancient, ancient translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. The Septuagint, go back to that. The Septuagint translation is the one that uses the word diseases in that section of the crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. That's the phrase from the Septuagint that Matthew is quoting. And even though it uses the word diseases in the passage in the Septuagint or the diseases in the passage that Matthew puts down here, you can obviously see by the context, and we all know Matthew was like a super nerd Jew, he would have known the context. You can all see by the context that there's nothing about this that is talking about diseases in the terms of human sickness, right? And you hear people say, oh, but by his wounds we are healed. Well, that's taking one little phrase way out of context. What is the healing in the context of this passage? The healing is that we are all under God's judgment. We deserve his punishment. We deserve all kinds of oppression. We deserve all kinds of judgment. And the punishment that brings us peace falls on him. Here's the thing. Jesus isn't the one who sweeps away human sadness. Jesus is not the one who lifts off and eliminates human suffering. Jesus is not the one who guarantees you a happy, comfortable life. Jesus is not the one who guarantees with just a little bit of faith your sickness will be healed. Jesus is not that guy. Jesus is the guy who says, nope, I will take the worst of it on me. That's why Matthew says, and that's why Isaiah says, he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Jesus healing people physically during his ministry was a metaphor of what he could do for every aspect of your life. He could take everything that sin has broken in your life and in this world, and he could put it on himself and bear it so that you wouldn't have to. And the point is not that Jesus does these things for you to provide you an answer for your problems. The point is that Jesus himself is the answer. 
to all the problems. He is the answer. It's not that he does the answer. He is the answer. All the punishment that brings us peace is on him, not removed because of him, on him. See, this is why Jesus is doing what he's doing. Because he's not trying to alleviate your suffering for a few minutes. He's trying to bring you closer to him because he's the answer. Let's keep going. Verse 18. Jesus then says, well, okay, it's it's time for us to move to another location because if he moves, he can have followers, right? If he stays in one place, there's no one who's following him. If he wants followers, he has to move. Check this out. Watch. Watch what happens. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Okay, so I got a crowd around me, but I don't want a crowd. I want followers, so let's go somewhere else. Let's cross the lake. Then, immediately after he indicates that he's going to leave, a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, first of all, listen. Okay, you don't have to say you're going to follow him if he's literally walking away. Just follow him, right? You, You don't have to say it. Just do it. He says it because he wants acknowledgement. He wants appreciation. He wants Jesus to pat him on the back and say, Good for you. That's exactly what I wanted you to do. But Jesus instead says, Did you know foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? In other words, I'm not stopping. If you start following me, I'm going to keep walking. There's no place for me to lay down and stop for the moment. Jesus is always on the move. And so if you want to follow him, it's not like you follow him for a day and then you lie down at night. It's not like you follow him for a week and then you take a break. It's not like you follow him on Monday or Sunday or Wednesday. And then the other days you're like, you know, I'll catch up with you later, Jesus. Just keep going. I'll I'll catch up with you in a little bit. No, Jesus says, I don't ever lay down my head. If you follow me, You follow me all the day, all the time. Keep going. Another disciple. Now, I find this interesting. They call this guy a disciple. Another disciple. That doesn't mean he's one of the 12. Jesus hasn't identified the 12 yet. But this is a person who was already considered to be a follower. And that guy, this disciple, says to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. So Jesus says, I'm going to go to the other side of the lake. And this guy says, hang on. um, I'm going to stay on this side of the lake. Hang on. I'm just going to stay back a little bit. I'm going to bury my father. I'll catch up with you later. And Jesus says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. See, Jesus wants followers. He wants people who are coming in. He he doesn't just want people who are learning. He doesn't just want people who are experiencing the healing. He wants them to be with him. Keep going. He says in verse 23, it says, Then he got into a boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. You've heard, you've heard this story before. I imagine if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard some preacher talk about this story, about how Jesus is asleep in the boat and they, they talk all about how the wind and the waves are crashing all around and everybody else is all panicky and whatnot, but Jesus is calm and asleep and they might make some point like, you should be more like Jesus. You know, just sleep through the storm. Just ignore all the stuff that's going on around you. Pretend it doesn't exist. And they might leverage that by looking at what Jesus says after the disciples come to him. Verse 26, or 25. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I'm going to pause here for just another little moment. Because the word faith showed up again, did you see? And again, it's important for us to kind of understand what's happening here with with the faith that's happening here. Jesus says, you of little faith, Why are you so afraid? It makes perfect sense for us to recognize that faith and fear are opposing forces. And we might say that Jesus always thinks that faith is more important than fear. 
At the beginning of the whole COVID pandemic, I remember seeing uh, some Christian posts, t-shirts, and all sorts of other paraphernalia that was beginning to to tout this phrase, faith over fear. You might have seen this, you might have heard it, you might have bought one of these things. This says, faith over fear. And granted, that is exactly what Jesus seems to be indicating here in this passage, faith over fear. The problem is, well, what does that mean? Does that mean the storm is all around me and I just ignore it? I don't worry about it because Jesus looked at these guys. He said, why are you so afraid? Well, of course, their faith was lost because they didn't believe they were going to make it to the other side. They had lost their faith that they would be safe no matter what was going on around them. So you as a Christian need to have faith that you will be safe no matter what's going on in the world around you. And so this phrase, faith over fear, became used, at least in the circles that I was familiar with, to basically say, hey, Christians can go to church and not worry about being in a crowd of people. Hey, Christians don't have to worry about wearing masks. And hey, Christians should obviously flaunt the fact that they are gathering together and they aren't wearing masks because we are a people of faith over fear. You might have even seen the bumper stickers. We're a people of faith over fear. But is that what Jesus is talking about? Is Jesus telling them they should have ignored the storm? I don't think so. Because see, you know, they say, Jesus, we're going to drown. And Jesus says, You have little faith, why are you so afraid? They were right to be afraid if they thought they were going to drown. That is the normal thing to feel when you think you're going to drown. Fear is normal in that situation. I don't think Jesus was blaming them for having that fear. So what else could it be? Oh, maybe it's this. Maybe it's you of little faith, didn't you realize that even if you died, that's not a big deal? Because for the Christian, death is not that big of a deal. For the Christian, death is just a transition into being in the presence of God. So these disciples were were showing a lack of faith because if they had died, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Death just is the transition into heaven. And so maybe Jesus is saying, why are you so afraid of death? Is that really what's going on? I don't think so. Because remember, Jesus said we're going to the other side. He didn't say we're going to go to the middle of the lake and die. He said we're going to the other side. He had said something. The question is, what are they going to do with that previous information in light of the current circumstances? You see, Jesus says, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? I think the lack of faith is evident in the words they said to Jesus. Did you see them? The words they said to Jesus are, Lord, save us. That's kind of an act of faith. But also look at the next phrase. We're going to drown. My question to them is, what makes you think you know the future? I'm not saying ignore the storm. I'm saying stop pretending you know the outcome. Stop pretending you can predict the results. Because you see, there's only one person in this scenario who has any sense of where things are going. And it's not the disciples in the boat. See, the disciples in the boat should know that Jesus can. And if Jesus can, then there's no reason for them to think we're going to drown. Instead, their first reaction should have been, Jesus, listen, we know you can do something about this, but we're freaking out about this storm, so we're just bringing it to you. See, I am convinced that Jesus liked the fact that they woke him up. I'm also convinced that Jesus didn't like the fact that they had already concluded they were going to die. They had predicted their own future and now are asking Jesus to fix their future when the truth is all along, all they needed to do was just come to him. That's what Jesus wants. 
That's what Jesus wants. Jesus just wants people to come to him. If he's asleep in the boat, he just wants you to come to him. If the storm is raging, he just wants you to come to him. He doesn't want you to worry and fret about the future and and try to predict what's going to happen. You don't have to predict the end. All you have to do is show up to him because he's the one who can. He can deal with anything. And your faith that he can is what brings you to him. And you just say, Jesus, here's the thing. And then you trust him to do with that thing whatever he wants to do with that thing. Jesus isn't about, okay, I'm going to solve all your problems. He's like, I'm here. Just come to me. Everything about Jesus is trying to get the people to come to him. Keep going. Verse 28. What you're about to see is the story change. Because from here until the end of chapter 9, what we've seen so far is Jesus doing you know, miracles and people are amazed. Crowds are coming. But what you're about to see is everything changing because now you're going to see Jesus do miracles. You're going to see amazing things. And some people follow him, but some get offended. And this is where that offense begins to show up. Verse 28. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So by the way, if a demon knows that you're the son of God, he probably is, right? I mean, the scripture is clear that Jesus was much more than just a normal human being because a demon is freaking out about Jesus. The disciples were freaking out about the storm. The demon is freaking out about Jesus. Here it is. What do you want with us? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. How many words has Jesus said so far? None. They're so afraid they're doing all the talking. Then he said to them, go. In other words, sure, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And what do you think happens next? If you heard about a miracle like that, you'd be like, holy cow, this guy is so incredibly powerful that he brought those demons out of those two dudes who were living in the tombs that were freaking everybody out, and they went into the pigs, and there were enough demons to make all those pigs go into the water and kill themselves. That's a pretty amazing thing. Maybe the guy who has enough power to do all that might have the power to restore that farmer's fortunes? I don't know. But anyway, maybe he was capable of something. And I would go out there and be like, dude, tell me your secret. What's happening? No. What they say is this. The whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Jesus, we were scared of those demons. Now we're scared of you. Please leave. Chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man laying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Again, you get this picture of some people who like what Jesus is doing, some people who are offended by what Jesus is doing. But what I find really interesting is that his miracles are getting bigger. Have you noticed? He did a miracle to calm the storm. He did a miracle to send demons into a giant herd of pigs. He did a miracle to forgive a man's sins. And then to prove that he could forgive the man's sins, he also told the man, I'll heal your body too. His miracles are getting bigger, more impressive, a little more scary, a little more intimidating with what's going on here. But look at this next one, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, 
he saw a man named Matthew. Hey, that's the name of the book, Matthew, uh, sitting at the tax collector's booth. The guy who wrote this was a tax collector. You know, back in that day, they would be considered them. The people you don't want to talk about, talk to, look at, or think about. Those people. The outsiders morally. The outsiders spiritually. The people who are doing such an appalling thing to the people of God in the city that should be the city of God for the benefit of the country of Rome. The tax collectors were shunned in all ways. But Jesus says as you would expect, follow me. Follow me, he told him. And, miracle of miracles, Matthew got up and followed him. Matthew left whatever resources he had, all that money, all of that job at the tax collector's booth. He is following Jesus. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's, he invited, Matthew invited Jesus over to his house. And Jesus is willing to go. He's having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now that is an atrocious thing. That's a scandalous thing thing for Jesus to do, to have food with such terrible people. Because it wasn't just tax collectors, it was tax collectors and sinners. By the way, sinners is code word for those people who are sexually immoral. Sinners is the prostitutes. Sinners is those people who are engaging in the prostitutionary trade and other sorts of really, really bad things for the people of Israel. And now they're sitting in a room with Jesus sharing a meal with him. And of course, people freak out. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, okay, so the, the disciples don't even get a chance to answer. Jesus gives the answer. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus doesn't say, I came to fix the problems. Jesus doesn't say, I came to teach the people. He says, I came to call. I came to bring. I came to get people here. So everything he's doing, the miracle of the demons, the miracle of the storm, the miracle of saying your sins are forgiven, and now the miracle of actually bringing life and healing and spiritual wholeness to people that the society had cast out, the tax collectors and the sinners, seeing a transformation in someone's life, there is no greater miracle than when you see a transformation in someone's life. And they have brought, they have been brought in. Jesus is like, that's what I'm about. Keep going, verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And you might be saying, well, what is that parable all about? Okay, wineskins, patches. What's that parable all about? It's really just simply this. The Pharisees are accusing Jesus of not holding the old ways. And Jesus is answering them, what are you talking about? We're not dealing with old wine anymore. What are you talking about? We're not dealing with an old garment anymore. What are you talking about? Something new is here. How can they possibly fast while I'm here. If you don't pick up on it, I'll make it clear. Jesus is saying to them, not that he's doing a new thing. He is the new thing. Jesus is the new black. Jesus is the new orange. Jesus is the new everything. He is the new thing. All the other stuff doesn't matter because the point isn't about what he's doing or what he's teaching or what he's saying. The point is about him. He wants people to come to him. Let's finish it up. Verse 18, while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. 
Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. Remember, she didn't think that Jesus would do something. She just thought Jesus could do something, and that was what brought her to him. Same thing with the guy. These are miracles above other miracles we've seen. Someone is getting healed just by touching Jesus, and Jesus says, yep, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Not everybody supports what Jesus is doing. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. He's now raised someone from the dead. This isn't just sickness anymore. This is raising someone from the dead. And then verse 27 As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he'd gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Again, it's just faith that he can. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Some people love him. Some people are spreading the news about him. But while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. This guy is too much. Nothing like these things has ever been done. People being raised from the dead, women being healed from touching fabric, Uh, a guy who could not speak because of a demon, now all of a sudden the demon's gone, and also he has the ability to speak. Nothing like these things has ever been done. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus' miracles kept getting bigger and bigger, more and more impressive. And some people saw it, and some people didn't. But the thing we need to keep in mind is that everything he did, everything he was doing, was about bringing people into him. Because, see, these people didn't need a healing. These people didn't need a teacher. These people needed a king. Because without the king, they couldn't enter the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is about. Everything he did was to bring people to him because they needed the king to bring them into the kingdom. Listen, I know sometimes you look at scripture, I do too, through selfish eyes. And we say, look at all the things Jesus did for these other people. Why doesn't he do those things for me? Look at all these things Jesus did for those other people. Why doesn't he do these things for the person that I love? And our dilemma is, man, Jesus taught these people. I want, I want my friends to get their act together. I want to be taught accurately. I want to know which path to walk on. I want to know the right answers. Jesus healed these people. I want my problems to be fixed. And we think of the things Jesus did as ends in themselves when they were never an end in themselves. Jesus did all these things because he had a bigger picture in mind, a bigger desire in mind. He wanted you and me to come in. He wanted the people around to be brought in because he's the king and he's the only way you're going to become a citizen of his kingdom. So I'm going to end with this final challenge from a simple phrase, some draw near, some do not. The question is, what about you? What about me? What about us? Are we going to be people who are drawn to the kingdom for all of its blessings? Or are we going to be people who are drawn to the king and who he is? Because here's the truth. If you want to be one of the people who's in the kingdom, and all you really care about is the kingdom, as Jesus already told us from the earlier passage, there are going to be a lot of people who are already in who are going to end up being out. If you just want the kingdom for the kingdom's sake, you're going to get nothing.
But if you want the king, you're going to get both. Our job is not to pursue the things Jesus brings or the things he does. Our job is to pursue who he is. I want to follow him. I want to walk with him. I want to be with him. I want to look like him. Because the more I follow him for who he is, the more these other things come into my life. But I don't even care about those other things because I'm with him. It doesn't matter if I get this blessing or the other blessing or some other blessing or no blessing because I've got him and icing on the cake, he brings the kingdom with him. Because he's the king. Some draw near, some don't. What about you? What about me? I'm going to give you just a moment here in reflection. We haven't done this for almost a year, but we're going to spend some time and just some quietness before a final song. And during this quiet place of reflection, I want you to take the moment to say, Jesus... Do I draw near to you because of the blessings I'm hoping to get from you or because of you? Jesus, am I trying to bring other people to you because I think you're going to fix their problems or because you're that valuable? Jesus, is my faith based on the things I think you're going to do for me or is my faith just simply based on the fact that you can? You are. We're going to spend a few moments in quiet and then we're going to sing this final song about recognizing no matter what the storms come, what storms come into our lives, if, if we're with Jesus, then it's all okay. Let me pray for you. Lord, in the quietness of this place, we ask that you would speak into our hearts and help us to be people who, who begin to come to you just because of who you are. Lord, we thank you for all your blessings, but we want to just be with you. Speak into our hearts now in this quiet place. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.